you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. The Gorilla Man. The Dark Strangler. The Man with a Ghastly Smile. These and other names were given to a mysterious killer who left a trail of bodies in his wake. For a year and a half in the late 1920s, women across the United States were terrified by this man's crimes. Beginning in February of 1926 in the San Francisco area, he eventually ranged up and down the West Coast and across the Midwest and to Philadelphia in the East. Despite an intensive manhunt nationwide, it was, ironically, not the Americans who would finally capture this man. But even with the interest in true crime nowadays, the name of the killer generally isn't a very well-known one, despite his being one of the more prolific American serial killers. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is episode 73, the first part of the story of Earl Leonard Nelson. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. story was quite an intimidating one. While it's not really an especially complex tale, the sheer magnitude of the crimes of Earl Leonard Nelson, the sheer number of bodies attributable to this man, make telling it a rather daunting task. He was pretty well assumed to have committed at least 22 murders, although a large number of other attacks might be attributed to him, as well as several other murders that seem consistent with his M.O. Speaking of which, Another factor I think needs discussion is the matter of his M.O. Unlike most killers, his methodology seems pretty well established from his earliest crimes. This could lead one to imagine how many other crimes in earlier years might actually be his, but aren't generally attributed to him, given that serial killers quite often experiment a bit early on before settling on a methodology. I struggled with how exactly I was going to handle the M.O., since... Almost all of his crimes, really, were pretty well identical with each other. I didn't really want to just describe the same thing 22 times, after all. So, we'll go into the M.O. established with the first victim, and then later on, the only times I'll really go into M.O. are the slight variations of that that get thrown into the mix. But, in general, if I don't describe exactly how the victim was killed, well... Assume it's the same as the first. That said, it's going to be a little while until Earl Leonard Nelson himself actually re-enters the story, outside of occasional encounters by witnesses. The first victim of the killer's rampage, then, 
was a 60-year-old woman by the name of Clara Newman. Newman, a native of Michigan, was quite wealthy, owning a house in Pennsylvania and two in San Francisco. Her wealth wasn't really very obvious, however, and she lived quite frugally. Clara had a nephew named Merton, who years before had been adopted by her mother, and thus he grew up treating Clara as a sister, and it was only later that he was to discover that she was actually his aunt. Merton had a house at 2037 Pierce Street in San Francisco, and he offered to sign the deed of the house over to his wealthy aunt. She operated a boarding house there and lived on the first floor, while Merton himself moved into the second floor apartment, living there with his wife and son. And the third floor, then, was split between two apartments, one which was being rented by a couple by the name of Brown, and the other which was vacant. Merton was later to testify that he and his family were in their apartment when he heard the doorbell ring and then Clara talking with some man. A moment afterwards, he heard two sets of footsteps ascending the stairs toward the third floor and concluded that his aunt was likely showing the vacant apartment. Shortly afterwards, he realized that the heat wasn't working right, and he went down into the basement to check on the furnace. When he got it working again, he started to go back to his rooms, and it was while on his way that, as he told the San Francisco Examiner the next day, In Aunt Clara's kitchen, I saw a strange man standing there. Hello, I said. What are you doing here? Where's the landlady, he asked. What do you want of her, I said. Well, he answered, just tell her that I'll be back in an hour to take that room. He walked down the back stairs with me and went away. I went back to my apartment and told my wife about the man. We waited a while, but heard nothing of Clara and finally began to worry. We looked through the house but saw nothing of her. We thought perhaps she had gone to one of the neighbors. Finally, my wife suggested that I look for Clara's keys. I did and could not find them. Then I started a thorough search of the house. On the third floor in the rear is an unoccupied apartment of a bedroom, kitchen, and bath. The door of this was locked. I broke it open and the bedroom seemed undisturbed. In the kitchen, I found Clara lying on the floor. The police surgeon, Dr. Selby Strange, yes, Dr. Strange, who conducted Clara's autopsy, said in a statement that Miss Newman was outraged and choked to death. The killer's fingerprints and the marks of his fingernails are on the throat, sharply defined. Other injuries complete the story from a medical standpoint. Dr. Strange's statement left out one detail. Possibly it was sanitized for the newspaper, or possibly it could simply not be determined in this instance, but as the Newman murder seems to firmly establish Nelson's M.O., it was most likely the case. While she had been outraged, or raped, this was done post-mortem. Besides a serial strangler, Nelson was a necrophiliac. A few days later, Oakland policeman J.J. McMorrow arrested a suspect, thought to be a laborer, on the streets of his city that he thought resembled the description of the man Merton Newman had confronted in the kitchen of the building. When the nephew of the murdered woman came to view the suspect, however, he stated that it was definitively not the man, and the laborer was released. Just 11 days later, on March 3rd, retired realtor Harvey J. Beale of San Jose, as well as his wife, Laura, had gone to run some errands around town, according to a statement he made to police. 
About four o'clock in the afternoon, Laura E. Beal took her leave from her husband, returning to their home in the Deer Park Apartments at 521 East Santa Clara Street. The Beals owned and operated the apartment building. When Harvey returned to the home himself about two hours later, his wife was nowhere to be seen. Harold Schechter's book on Nelson, Bestial, on the other hand, says that it was only Mr. Beal who was in the city, and that Laura stayed home all day. Essentially, the only difference is that one account gives a two-hour window in which she could have been killed, and the other a five-hour window. Either way, after a frantic search, he eventually discovered her around 10 o'clock that night, stretched out on a bed in the sole vacant unit in the building. The room had been locked. Unlike Clara Newman, she had not been manually strangled, instead having been choked with a drawstring ripped from her dress, which had been wound around her neck. Nelson seemed to quite often vacillate between manual strangulation and garroting his victim, always with some object lying around their home, rather than anything that he brought with him. Dr. Amos Williams, the coroner, confirmed Mrs. Beale's time of death as, have, as having taken place at approximately 4.30 that afternoon. The next day, H.S. Bailey, the proprietor of a business across the street, told police that at about that time, he had seen a dark-complected man running from the apartment building. This description tallied fairly well with that of the man seen by Merton Newman, and it was determined that the killer of both women was in all likelihood the same man. Several other San Jose women came forward to report encounters with mysterious men who they thought might have been the killer. Mrs. F.C. Rochester called to report a man who had shown up at her apartment building offering his services as a handyman. A young woman named Elsie Ehlert was in her father's shop at 1060 Alameda when a tall man approached her, leaned over the counter, and tried to grab her. The quick-thinking Ehlert ran out the back door. The attacker followed, whereupon she hurriedly ran around to the front, slammed and locked the door behind her, and then ran to the back of the store and locked that door. Even after this, the man leered at her through the windows. Neither of these men, however, in any way matched the description of the killer. Mrs. D.L. Courier of 23 Hester Street reported that she was napping with her four-year-old son when she awoke to find a dark-skinned man leering at her. He ripped her dress when she fled and grabbed her, attempting to strangle her with a strip of cloth torn from it. In the struggle, she struck her head, and when she fell unconscious, the stranger fled. In this case, the man did seem to resemble Nelson somewhat, but the M.O. of the attack was completely unlike him. One other attack that may have been one of Nelson's, however, was the attack on a landlady named Mrs. E.R. Vickers. She was approached by a man with dark skin and black hair who asked to see a vacant room in the apartment building Vickers maintained. When she showed him it, she said that when her back was turned, the man grasped her by the throat. She screamed, and the man escaped. In my opinion, this very well might have been an attack by Earl Leonard Nelson, since the description tallies, the ruse used to gain access to the intended victim was the same, and the method in which the attack was launched is identical to that described in one of his failed attacks. Four days after the murder of Mrs. Beale, on the afternoon of March 6th, an Austrian immigrant by the name of Joe Kasesek was arrested in San Jose on suspicion of the strangling. To be fair, the physical appearance of Kasesek was notably consistent with that of the murderer, 
and when arrested, he was even dressed much as Merton Newman had said the stranger in the kitchen was. So unlike many arrests during these periods of murder hysteria, that of Kasesik seems to have been merely an, honor, an honest mistake. By March 8th, it was confirmed that he was not the man police sought, and he was released. Shortly after this, another failed attack was noted. This time, the intended victim was a middle-aged woman named Edna Martano, who, who operated a boarding house at 1955 17th Street. The man met her at the front door and inquired about rooms, to which Martano replied that she did, indeed, have a few available. In this case, Nelson, or at least the attacker is presumed, though not confirmed to have been him, barely even made it in the door before attacking Mrs. Martano, attempting to drag her back into her own apartment. Mrs. Martano fought back, and escaping the man's grip, she made her way back into the room, slamming and locking the door. He fumbled with the lock for a few moments, trying to gain entry, but then he fled the building. Shortly after, Martano's husband came home, and Edna, not realizing who was at the door, refused to let him in the door at first. After the killing of Laura Beale and the other possible attacks, he was not again active for several months. Odd, as throughout the time he was active, Earl Leonard Nelson usually killed approximately every two weeks. The next victim, coming on June 10th, was 63-year-old Lillian St. Mary. She operated a boarding house at 1073 Dolores Street in San Francisco. Divorced, she lived in the home with her son James and two boarders in R.C. Bryan and Herman Vanderzee. There were also two vacant rooms. Mrs. St. Mary met a man at her door inquiring about a room, a man who was, of course, Earl Leonard Nelson. Around 5 o'clock that evening, R.C. Bryan returned to the house and was surprised when he found the kitchen to be empty. Since it was normally Mrs. St. Mary's habit to be downstairs cooking when he arrived home. He went upstairs and found the door to one of the vacant rooms ajar. Inside, he could see the motionless form of Mrs. St. Mary lying on the bed. This crime scene was quite messy, revealing that Lillian had fought back against her attacker. She had been beaten, she had been beaten in addition to the usual indignities heaped upon Nelson's victims and three of the woman of the old woman's ribs and three of the old woman's ribs had been broken her purse which was believed to have contained a few dollars was missing while jewelry worn by the woman was still on the body this description and other circumstances leave no doubt in my mind that the so-called dark strangler is the man we want for the murder of mrs st mary detective duncan matheson said referring to a dark-skinned heavy-set man picked up by trolley car driver Al Wolf at 23rd and Dolores Streets. After traveling about a block, the man jumped off the trolley car and ran away. On June 12th, a 15-year-old girl named Helen Lawrence reported that she was attacked by a man who she thought was the so-called Dark Strangler around 1.30 at her home in Alameda. The man had been by the house earlier, asking about rooms for rent. He returned later and attacked Helen, dragging her into a bedroom, and fleeing when a telephone rang. Although this wasn't believed to be a genuine attack by Nelson, it is, however, remarkably consistent with the attack on Edna Martano, and to some extent with that on Elsie Allert. Was there another serial offender in the Bay Area, using stories of Earl Leonard Nelson's murders to cover his own assaults? Another attack took place the next night, 
when 55-year-old Alice Wilberg of San Francisco said she was punched in the face, beaten, and choked by a man who attacked her as she slept. She kicked the man, who called her a, quote, dirty hussy, and fled. Her husband urged her to call the police when he returned home at 11 o'clock that night. A butcher named Otto Kruger was arrested in Los Angeles on June 13th, having been seen to be acting rather suspiciously on board a steamership running from San Francisco to Los Angeles. As he answered the description available of the killer, he was picked up for questioning. However, Merton Newman denied he was the man seen in the kitchen, and after a few days, Kruger was released. Exactly two weeks after the murder of Lillian St. Mary, on June 24th, a 45-year-old Santa Barbara woman named Ollie Russell was killed. One of the other boarders in her house, a railroad worker named William Fraley, recounted how he was awoken at about 3.30 in the afternoon by a racket in one of the empty units. Peering through the keyhole, he saw a man with his pants down, standing over a woman who was stretched out on the bed. As the man moved away, Fraley saw that the woman was Mrs. Russell. She had been strangled with the aid of a garrot, as had Lord Beale. Fraley came under suspicion himself for a brief time, but the police, who had been pretty confident the murder was the handiwork of a strangling maniac, released Fraley soon after. The murder of Ollie Russell was followed, on August 5th, by the arrest of a man for vagrancy in Needles, California. The man, Philip H. Russell, told police on arrest that he had attacked a dozen women on the West Coast, and that he had killed some. There was an attempt to connect him to the June 18th murder of Sylvia Howard Gaines in Seattle, a murder that for some reason was assumed to have been part of the strangling spree, although Gaines had been bludgeoned to death. Russell denied he had been in Seattle, and indeed, by that time, the girl's father, Wallace Gaines, had been arrested for the slaying. The Gaines murder is one I might come back to in the future for an episode in its own right. But, back to the case against Russell, but back to the case against Russell, the police also tried to pin the murder of Ollie Russell onto him. For a brief time, there was a belief that the strangling killer of the last several months was finally in custody. This, however, was all dispelled on August 16th, when the body of another aged landlady, Mrs. Mary Nisbet, was discovered by her husband Stephen in their property at 525 27th Street in Oakland. Stephen returned home from work at about 5 p.m. His wife wasn't present then, and so he went about his business in the house. Several hours later, though, he still couldn't find her and asked the other tenants of the apartment building. He finally discovered the body of his wife lying on the bathroom floor of a vacant apartment. She had been strangled with a towel. Once again, Stephen was briefly under suspicion, though the statements of a mailman named David Atwood, who saw a dark-skinned, stocky stranger standing out front of the apartment building, and a tenant named Charlotte Jaffe, who had seen the same man, convinced Oakland police that they had joined San Francisco, San Jose, and Santa Barbara as another city visited by the Strangler. Hey fellow Forgotten Darkness listeners, I'm Cece, the host of a new true crime podcast, Sooner State True Crime. As a born and bred Okie, I'll cover cases based in my wonderful home state of Oklahoma. The term Sooner actually refers to Cheaters and Malandra, the state's very first true crime, 
New episodes are released twice a month in Apple Podcasts and most podcast apps. Or visit our website, anchor.fm slash crime state to listen now. So come away with me to my crime state on the Sooner State True Crime Podcast. And please stay sooner safe out there, y'all. While Oakland police were still struggling to get anywhere in their investigation of Nisbet's death, another woman was killed. This one was 76-year-old Isabel Galagos, who died on August 19th in the city of Stockton. The operator of a boarding house at 1330 East Channel Street, she was discovered by a former tenant named Cece Parnett, who had come to the house to pick up his mail, which was still being delivered to Mrs. Galagos's. The house was in a shambles, and in one of the rooms lay Galagos, strangled with a pillowcase. Initially, the police assumed this to be another killing by the dark strangler. But when the autopsy revealed that Mrs. Galagos, unlike the other victims, had not been raped, their confidence in this assumption began to waver. When her daughter came forward and said that her mother was one of those people who had a reputation of having a great deal of money squirreled away, it began to waver even more. The same day, another Stockton landlady named Sadie Powers, who lived at 100 Union Street, came forward to say that she had been attacked by a man who came to see a vacant room she had. She described her attacker as a dark-skinned man with bushy eyebrows, probably around 25 and about 5'7". On August 21st, word came from Sacramento that a man named John Slivkoff also known as John Stickos or Jack Pappen, was arrested after tips from several landladies that he had tried to grab him. Merton Newman, Charlotte Jaffe, and David Atwood, the three individuals who had seen the killer most clearly, came to the city to view Slivkoff. Charlotte Jaffe said of the man, He does not look like the man I saw on the stairs of Mrs. Nisbet's apartment house. Of course, one reason is that he is dressed differently. But his eyes, too, are different and he seems to be a much larger man. Any early optimism there may have been over Slivkoff's guilt was swiftly dispelled after neither Newman nor Atwood identified the man. On October 20th, a 33-year-old man named J.E. Ross, owner of a cafe in San Jose, was arrested. Under the guise of a salesman, he attacked and raped Marion DeFiori in her home. He had also attacked a woman named Edna Johnson, I would also wonder whether he may have been the man who committed the other San Jose attacks on Mrs. Courier, Elsie Ehlert, and possibly some of the others in the area. In the end, though there was an attempt to pin the murder of Laura Beale on Ross, the accusation didn't stick. J.E. Ross was sentenced to 5 to 25 years in San Quentin on December 10th. He may have been a serial rapist, but he wasn't the right one. While this was going on in California... Earl Leonard Nelson, had left for the state to the north. From his first Oregon murder, he introduced another new element, attempts to hide his victims. I suppose you could say this had technically been present before, what with his locking the doors to the rooms in which the bodies lay, but now it became a more active sort, with him beginning to put effort into actively concealing the bodies. Also at this time, he began to ramp up the frequency of his attacks considerably. On October 19th, 
A 15-year-old boy named Charles Withers returned to his home at 815 East Lincoln Street in Portland, Oregon, and didn't see his mother, a 32-year-old musician named Beata Withers, anywhere in the house. After a few moments of fruitless searching, he called her former boyfriend Bob Frenzel. Together, they searched the house and spoke to several of Mrs. Withers' friends, but still to no avail. When she still hadn't turned up by the next day, the disappearance was reported to the police. Then Charles went to school as normal, and when he returned home to an empty house a second time, he called Bob Frenzel again, and then the two, along with another man named G.C. Cook, searched the house again, more thoroughly than they had the day before. Frenzel and Cook were searching the attic when, in a trunk, covered by clothing, they discovered the naked body of Beata Withers. They swiftly called the police. There was an initial suspicion of murder, Bob Frenzel himself coming under suspicion, but soon the lead investigator, Detective James Tackenberry, became convinced that the entire affair was a suicide and that Mrs. Withers had shut herself into the trunk, motivated by an apparent despondency over the fact that Bob Frenzel was actually a married man. I tried the trunk to see if a person could do as Mrs. Withers did, enter, arrange the clothing, work the tray in place, and drop the lid. It could be done easily, and all suspicion of murder vanished. The inquest jury failed to reach a definitive verdict as to whether the death of Mrs. Withers was a homicide or a suicide. Only two days later, on the 21st, a 59-year-old woman named Virginia Grant was killed in a house she owned and was renting out at 604 East 22nd Street. Her body was found lying behind a furnace in the basement, with two diamond rings missing. The death of Mrs. Grant was attributed to natural causes, likely a heart attack, by coroner's assistant Dr. Frank Mena. Mena cited only minor bruising on her head, which he thought would be consistent with the fall to the ground. The Grant killing is almost singularly underreported. It was only two days after that, that yet another death was reported. This time, the victim was 37-year-old widow Mabel Fluke, whose husband had died only months before. Since his death, she had moved into a small house on the property of her parents, her father being a wealthy Portland businessman named William MacDonald, and rented out her former home at 1521 East 21st Street. On October 23rd, she was present at that house, cleaning up for some potential renters who were coming to check out the property. She didn't return to her family's house that night, but they didn't really think too much of it, believing that she had possibly gone to the nearby town of Independence to visit her deceased husband's family. But when she still hadn't returned by the next day, Mabel's brother William went over to the house. It was locked, but he managed to gain entry through a basement window. He didn't see her either. When her niece Marion arrived from Independence, however, it became apparent that she hadn't actually gone to visit relatives. William MacDonald called the police, and he and policeman C.D. Maxwell went over to the house and gained entry. They swiftly noticed that it appeared Mabel had just left. Food was out on the table. Also, it was noted that her purse was still there, leading to a suspicion of the worst. Eventually, the two made their way into a tiny attic where they found the body of Mabel Fluke, her silk scarf wound around her neck and used as a garrote. She had been dead a few days by the time she was found. 
With three dead women in the city, the Portland police changed tack on the Withers and Grant cases and began looking at all three as homicides, the killer being thought at first to be, quote, an imitator of the California cases, rather than the same killer. I suppose that's understandable, what with the quickened pace and slightly different M.O. But then it seems that at some point, they reverted to the previous assumptions, with Withers being a suicide, Grant a natural death, and it was even made out that Fluke had strangled herself. The police received a letter, signed only she murderous, in which an 18-year-old girl, or, more cynically, someone claiming to be an 18-year-old girl, who said she was a flapper, confessed to all three Portland cases. The letter writer claimed that she had killed a fourth victim, whose body would be found in a few days. Natural causes, in this case due to her having suffered serious injury when she fell down the stairs a few days before, were at first suspected in the November 18th death of Anna Edmonds at 3524 Fulton Street back in Nelson's old prowling grounds of San Francisco. The woman's son, Raul Edmonds, had come over to his mother's home to celebrate her 66th birthday when he let himself in the house to discover her lying on the living room floor. Her clothes were disturbed and there was bruising around her neck, which was thought at first to have resulted from a fall. But when doctors T.B.W. Leland, Selby Strange, and University of California specialist Z.E. Bolin announced that the marks were definitively those made by strangulation, and it was discovered that some of Mrs. Edmonds' jewelry and money had been stolen, the police changed their tune. Captain Duncan Matheson and Lieutenant Charles D'Elia announced on the 19th that the death of Mrs. Edmonds was definitively connected with all the other strangulations of landladies that had taken place in the last several months up and down the West Coast. As Captain Matheson stated, He is a drifter. We have traced his movements and have found he travels by picking up rides from highway motorists. He strangled a woman in Portland. I am sure he was the same fellow who attacked and strangled a woman in Santa Barbara. And of course, his was the fiendish attack of Mrs. Laura Beals of San Jose and Mrs. Clara Newman here, besides half a dozen others. The very next day after the murder of Mrs. Edmonds, November 19th, another woman was attacked, though unsuccessfully, in Berlin Game, California. Mrs. H.C. Murray, a pregnant woman who had her house at 1114 Grove Avenue posted for sale, heard the doorbell ring at about 5 p.m. Outside stood a dark-skinned, average-sized man, dressed in a blue suit, white shirt, and brown shoes and fedora. He saw the sign and rang the bell. I opened the door. I had not the slightest thought of meeting the strangler, but always make it practice to take every precaution when showing strange men the house. I kept considerable distance from him the moment I let him in, at least six or eight feet. I also left the front door open. He first asked the price of the place and then said he would like to look at it. I let him in and he examined the rooms in much detail. He is evidently very familiar with building and construction, for he used expressions relating to such things that I did not understand. The final place we inspected was the screened porch in the rear of the house. He seemed particularly interested in this, and several times called my attention to the ceiling. I kept my distance, however, though I never once dreamed he was the strangler. After exhausting every pretext for lingering, he started out. 
When he reached the front door, he suddenly turned and said, There's something about that porch I'd like to see again. I returned there with him. As we stepped onto the porch, he suddenly pointed through the screen towards the garage outside. What sort of roof is on that garage? He asked. For the first time, I turned my back on him. And in that instant, I felt his hands closing around my neck from the rear. Struggling against him and worming her way out of his grasp, she raked her fingernails across his face. The man backed away and ran out of the front door, Mrs. Murray running after. She yelled to passing motorists, but by the time anyone responded, the man was out of sight. The police were contacted, and the area cordoned off, but Mrs. Murray's attacker had vanished. The attack on Mrs. Murray is often reported, erroneously, as a murder. The Strangler next appeared over 700 miles to the north, in Seattle, Washington. 48-year-old Florence Fithian Monks was a wealthy woman. Twice widowed, she inherited quite a bit of money from both husbands. She had moved from New York City to Seattle some years before, and had a house in Seattle's Capitol Hill District. She often went around town bedecked with jewelry, and several friends had warned her in the past that she was inviting trouble by flaunting her wealth in this way. At the time of her death on November 23rd, Mrs. Monks was in the process of selling her Seattle property in favor of moving to a house she owned at Echo Lake outside the city. That day, she had been showing the house, she had been showing the property to a number of potential buyers. At about 8 p.m. that evening, J.M. McCoy paid a visit to Mrs. Monks, but received no answer when he knocked at the door. At 6 p.m. the next day, Neighbor Edward McDonald noticed a couple waiting on Mrs. Monks's porch, repeatedly knocking, receiving no answer, and looking more than a little exasperated. McDonald came over, and they said that they were there to examine the property. He had a key, and so he let them in and showed them around. He noticed that Florence's car was still in the garage, however, and after the couple had left, got another neighbor named B.F. Gordon. Together, he and Gordon looked through the house, thinking that as Mrs. Monks had some medical issues, including a heart problem, she might be lying somewhere injured. An hour or so after MacDonald and Gordon left, the caretaker of the Echo Lake house, Thomas Raymond, came by to go over some things with Florence. He had been unable to reach her the night before when he called her, and having a key, let himself in the house. He was checking around and calling out when... In her bedroom upstairs, he noticed that the bureau drawers were open and looked as if they had been rummaged through. Making his way through the rest of the house, he went down to the cellar, and flipping on the lights, he noticed drag marks on the floor. He turned a corner and found the body of Florence Monks lying on the floor stuffed behind the furnace. Of course, the idea of Mrs. Monks being a victim of the Strangler was one of the earliest conclusions reached. Dr. Willis Corson, the coroner who examined the body, said that he couldn't swear that strangulation had been the actual cause of death, however. While there were definite signs that yes, she had been choked, there was also a sizable injury to her head, and he conjectured that she may have been bludgeoned, possibly with a large coal shovel that lay nearby. All the jewelry had been torn from her body as well, and when a more detailed examination of the body failed to turn up evidence of her having been sexually assaulted, as were the other victims, 
Corson and the police concluded robbery was the likely motive, and that it was likely not a lust murder, as they called sexual homicides in those days. J.M. McCoy quickly came under suspicion, as did several of the other people who had viewed the house the day of the murder. But all these individuals were eventually clear of suspicion. Eventually, despite questions as to the true cause of death, the monk's murder was chalked up as one of the stranglers after a policeman from Portland, Oregon named Archie Leonard came to Seattle expressing his belief that Florence's death had marked similarities to those of Beata Withers, Virginia Grant, and Mabel Fluke that had taken place in his city only shortly before. Some of the jewelry taken from Florence Monks, her necklace and a bracelet, was recovered on December 2nd. It was handed over by two women who ran a boarding house in Portland. While in Seattle, Thomas Raymond was just discovering Florence's body, a man had arrived at their boarding house. He left at about 11 a.m. on the morning of November 29th, giving them the jewelry before he left. The mysterious boarder was described as being about 5'7", with dark skin, eyes, and hair. He was likely somewhere between 24 and 26 years old. Immediately, it was realized this description tallied very well with each description police had of the Strangler. This was also a sign that he didn't necessarily kill every landlady he came across. And on November 29th, the Strangler was again heard of in Portland. Alexander Muir owned a house at 449 10th Street, and he leased this house out to Blanche Myers, who, like Florence Monks, was 48. Myers lived with her 18-year-old son, Lawrence. She also rented out two rooms on the second floor of the house, and she and Muir would split the money. On that day, Muir was visiting the property about an hour and a half after the strangler gave the two landladies Mrs. Monk's jewelry when Blanche answered a knock at the door. A few moments later, she split money with, with Muir, saying that she had just rented one of the upstairs rooms to a man who, she said, looked like a logger. Muir finished his business at the house and left at approximately 1.30 p.m. Lawrence Myers called police late that evening, saying that his mother had disappeared. He had looked around the house, but she was nowhere to be found. Two policemen arrived shortly and searched the house. Eventually, they found her in the room which she had rented out that day. Lawrence had checked this room and hadn't seen his mother. Her body was shoved under the bed, against the wall, the bedclothes hanging over the side far enough that the body wasn't easily visible. Lawrence told the police how she had rented the room out that day to a new lodger, one who had left already. Odd that he should pay for the room for a week and then not even stay 12 hours. Some money and other items were gone from the house as well. Ironically, the story reporting Blanche Meyer's death concludes with a quotation from San Francisco's mayor, James Rolfe Jr., saying, The San Francisco Police Department has solved every important crime of late, with one exception. That concerns the Dark Strangler, and the police expect to have him in custody within a week. Spoiler alert, they didn't. In fact, he'd be on the loose for seven months yet. And he was soon to leave the West Coast behind and go on a cross-country killing spree. Eleven more people would be dead at his hands before he was captured. And that's the end of this episode. 
As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. And photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to my or send it to my email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm, I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.